Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, the risks of rising global debt. How can investors stay ahead of an unsustainable challenge? We will also discuss mid-cycle corrections, rising inflation, and other risks to the global economy. What does it all mean for the markets? That's with our guest, Dirk Hofshire, Senior Vice President of Asset Allocation Research at Fidelity Investments. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. What are we watching for at the moment? Well, we are recording this in sort of early to mid-November, and we're having another fantastic quarter here. And Quite frankly, the returns at this point in the quarter are as good as they are in many calendar years. And a lot of good things happening. Um, The average stock is outperforming. Smaller companies are doing especially well, which suggests both potential uh, more economic and market momentum. Do you know what? I should quit talking because we have a great guest on today that can talk about the economy and the markets. Well, let's introduce him. Dirk Hofshire is Senior Vice President of Asset Allocation Research at Fidelity Investments. Dirk, welcome to The Weighing Machine. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we do have a lot to talk about, but before we get started, I'm going to throw it over to Rusty for our very important opening question. Yeah, Dirk, we have a lot of questions for you today, but of course, the first one may be the most important. And this is your walk-up song. What is the song we can hear in the background as you come up to take these pitches from Robin and I? I, I love the question because, you know, over the years, you always get the opportunity to go to some of these big events and they give you the walk-up song. No one's ever asked me what my walk-up song was going to be. So I've gotten some good ones over the years, like Beastie Boys and ACDC really gets the crowd going. I think I'm going to go for something more obscure, though, because nice. I, I hope what we're trying to do today is bring some insights that maybe people haven't heard in other places. So I'm going to go with my my favorite American band, The Replacements, a little uh, a gig from out of Minneapolis back in the 80s, uh, and their song, Can't Hardly Wait. So I'll go with the Can't Hardly Wait that we're about to get to a great discussion, but that's my little uh, song. And if anyone looks at you know, The Replacements up and we make a new fan today, then I will have considered this, this <laughs> podcast a, a positive interaction. That's a nice selection. I like it. Well, Dirk, you have been at Fidelity since 2000, I believe, but Prior to that, you were a foreign service officer with the U.S. Department of State, and I think you traveled all over the world as a financial economist, consular officer. Tell us about your role with the State Department. Yeah, so you know, I, I grew up always really interested in in the way the world worked and in the broad world, global themes and current affairs. And and so when I got out of uh, undergraduate, I applied to be a foreign service officer, which is basically our, our diplomatic corps, and. Spent eight years there. It was great. Like you said, I was in Latin America for a couple tours. I was in D.C. for a few years. And, um, you know, essentially it was an outstanding experience, uh, broadened, broadened my horizons a lot. But 
it ended up making me more interested in economics uh, and, and actually, which you wouldn't necessarily think, but in, in markets and whatnot. And that's kind of how I found myself interested in a different piece of the puzzle. Well, what were some of your favorite places to serve? So I was in uh, Bolivia for two years and Costa Rica was my, my first tour for two years. So that was not a hardship beginning to my diplomatic career, but uh, both, both have been Latin America. Well, tell us more about what brought you to Fidelity and, and what do you do in your position today? So I, I sort of decided uh, when I was in the Foreign Service that I, I got very interested in the markets. I, I spent some time during the, the late 90s on, on a task force during the Asian financial crisis and uh, long-term capital management failed. And there were a lot of things I didn't understand. I spent time on, on Wall Street getting to know a lot of different people and eventually realized I sort of wanted to go into investment. So Started with Fidelity. It was a, a great place to start. A uh, big company, a lot of smart people. I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do. But over time, uh, you know, found a, a niche in particular in sort of macro thematic work and in asset allocation ultimately, which is where I am today. So you do lead Fidelity's asset allocation research team. Can you tell us more about that team and the role it plays at Fidelity? Yeah, so the the asset allocation research team, it's uh, about 11 of us. I manage uh, several of the analysts on the team. And and really what we're trying to do, we are a a macro kind of team from the standpoint that we're taking the 30,000-foot view of the world and trying to figure out how all these big overarching global themes, economic politics, all of that, what they really mean for financial markets and ultimately for making decisions about asset allocation. So our job is to translate all that big picture stuff into asset allocation recommendations for all of our multi-asset class strategies. So target date and, and some of those are, are, are big strategies, but really anything that uses different pieces, you know, equities, bonds, commodities, cash, all that and makes those decisions. That's, that's our job is to try to figure out how to translate those big picture things into actual positioning. Kind of related to this is that Fidelity for many years was known for their chart room. Do they still maintain that? They do. And I, I can't be maybe up to the minute because the pandemic has taken the wind out of the office sales in general. Um, but yes, yeah, still still maintained. It's still a great place to visit if you're ever able to, to visit us in Boston. And, uh, you know, it started really with a lot of stock picking, you know, that's a lot of Fidelity's, Fidelity's heritage. But over the years, it was kind of everything. And it is a, it's, it's a fascinating place just to go back and, and get some financial history. All right. So your team is known for a lot of things, but this includes the multi-time horizon asset allocation framework. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so sort of like its name, it's it's got more than one time horizon. It starts with the uh, it starts with the kind of simple substantive conception of the world that one of the things when you think about what's going on in the world and you and you get asked a question that's important for investments like what's going to happen with interest rates, what's going to happen with Europe, what's going to happen with oil prices. The big answer that you need to start with is well, what time horizon am I trying to figure this out? And a lot of things in the world evolve over different periods. We have long run trends that sometimes they're hard to see because the short run trends overwhelm them. And, and sometimes the other ones capture the upper hand. But the essence of our multi-time horizon then is we're breaking up the world and we're saying very honestly, straight up front, we're going to analyze a long term 
period, what we call secular, so decade, 10, 20, 30 years, and, and try to establish that for our long-term outlook. And then we're going to think about other cyclical, which we think of the business cycle, and then maybe even tactical, super short-term things that deviate from the long-term. It's the intersection of those two, then, where you're going to come out with your final positioning. Well, let's discuss the business cycle then. What do we need to understand about how it works and, and what stage are we in now? So, you know, the essence of business cycle analysis, and, and we didn't invent it. Obviously, people know there's uh, economic cycles or business cycles and have for a long time. What we did is we, we tried to spend a lot of time though, analyzing the history and starting with the U.S. going back decades and uncovering what the patterns are that we have in common in and out of different cycles. We know this cycle is different from the last cycle. We know our economy is very different than it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. But it actually is pretty remarkable when you dive into this, how the similarities in some of these business cycle patterns continue to perpetuate themselves. And so we feel like you can get a pretty good clue of if you know where you are in the cycle, at least a starting point for a backdrop in terms of thinking about asset allocation on, again, sort of one, two, three-year basis. And today we find ourselves in sort of a mid-cycle sort of phase. Mid-cycle is usually the longest phase of the economic expansion or of the entire business cycle. So we were in early cycle. So if we, if we go back, the pandemic was strange. It was this exogenous shock where we shut everything down. We went into recession overnight. It doesn't usually happen that way. But that was, you know, March of 2020. Uh, the early cycle then started to appear kind of during the summer and then in, you know, more into the fall of last year. And, and now for about a year or so, we've been in a, in a mid-cycle type environment where the expansion tends to broaden. Now, some of this is just coincidental with economic opening. But again, the patterns are somewhat similar that you get the early cycle is a big bounce off the bottom the super fast growth rate after you really deteriorated and you get these easy sort of year-over-year -year comparisons. And the mid-cycle is where things sort of broaden. They become more stable, but they also become less exciting because some of the growth rates start to settle and you can be in for, you know, potentially a longer period of stability, although there's certainly ups and downs within a business cycle and the markets can oftentimes reflect that. So Fidelity has done some really interesting historical research on market corrections during the mid-cycle. How common are those during this phase? Well, they're pretty common. So, you know, the definition of a correction here that we'll use is a 10% drawdown in the markets, but one that doesn't reach 20% because 20% then we'd consider it a bear market. So it's, it's when you draw down 10% or more between 10 or 20%, and then you go back and recover your prior high instead of going into a bear market. And when we go back in history and look at this, mid-cycle is when almost all of the corrections occur. You know, in, in early cycle, they almost never occur because you're just getting started and you rarely have big drawdowns at that time. Late cycle, and especially recession, if you correct 10%, you're often in the downslide of the business cycle and you're going to go into a bear market because you're going to get a full economic recession or a profits recession or something that will be 20% or more drawdown. The essence of it is mid-cycle is actually can be a very long environment. We actually had a, like an eight-year mid-cycle last time. But during it, you can get these bouts of volatility. Maybe every couple of years or so, you would kind of expect to get a correction along the way. So it's not at all uncommon 
have some significant 10, 15% drawdown volatility, but it's in the context of a period if you kind of stay invested or overweight equities, maybe would be the call in mid-cycle, then overall you'll end up doing better. You know, we've been so spoiled by having below average volatility. And once we get a 10% correction, I'm sure that a lot of voices will be saying the end is near, you know, but, but the point is, it's just very common at this stage of the business cycle. I think it's an important lesson. All right. So one question that I'm getting a lot, and I, I bet you are too, is we're hearing a lot more concerns from advisors over rising global debt and what that might mean for the global economy and the global markets. Fidelity just happened to write a white paper on the subject, Unsustainable Global Debt Roadmap for Strategic Asset Allocation. Can you first tell us why debt has ballooned so much around the world in recent years? You know, it's, it's pretty simple why it's gone up. You know, one element is, is simply that the world over the past 10 years, but even for a little bit longer, we've started to see sort of slower growth on a global basis. And a big part of that, especially over the past 10 years, has been slowing demographic growth. So aging demographics, but just slower population growth. So you're not getting as, as rapid of economic growth. And that's allowed growth rates and then inflation rates, which often go together, to sort of fall at the same time, as well as then interest rates accompanying them, which means monetary policy has been able to get easier. And then on the fiscal side, Debt is obviously the, the public debt is the issuance uh, of, of more expansive fiscal policies and, and unfunded deficits. And that's been the corollary of all this. So it got very easy for the Fed to keep taking rates lower and lower. It got very easy for politicians to borrow more and more because at the end of the day, if you have a mountain of debt, but you're paying a very low interest rate, our debt service hasn't gone up very much. So it's been the path of least resistance when you think about this, again, sort of economics and politics all coming together, that the natural effect of this was just to have super accommodative policies, have debt go up, and sort of having your cake and eat it too, which has been what we've been doing over the past decade or two. So with all this debt, what is the biggest risk for investors in the markets? So, you know, the reason we spent some time putting a relatively lengthy for us white paper together on this is because when we thought about it, we just said to ourselves, what is the most apparent, clear risk that everyone can agree on? And yet the, also the biggest one that we're not exactly sure how it's all going to play out. Because that is sort of unprecedented at this point in terms of the sheer levels. And it's not just U.S. government. It's also the private sector. And it's not just the U.S. It's the rest of the world. We've never had this much public and private sector debt relative to economic activity in the history of the world. So the obvious question then is yours, you know, what, what actually happens at this point? It all seems fine. As you just mentioned at the top, everything's been going up. You know, as an investor, it's been a spectacular time. So why should we even be worried about this debt? What we did is we went back and, and studied a lot of these historical cases and kind of looked at, you know, how do you get out of it or what happens to countries when they hit these high debt levels? You know, what's, what's the end game? And what we found is, you know, no one's ever grown their debt infinitely forever, you know, relative to the size of their economy without something happening. They always tap out one reason or another. So how do you kind of get out of it? Well, it's hard to kind of grow your way out of it. It's hard also to use fiscal austerity to get your way out of it when you get to these really high levels. So what actually tends to happen is your policies tend to become more inflationary. And that's what I was just talking about with that fiscal and monetary. We've kind of already seen it. 
what happens over time is you get confident that as, as you do that and nothing bad happens and you keep trying even harder because you're still not getting more growth. You're getting less growth for sort of the policy stimulus bang for the buck. And so the essence of the risk then is we now are very tied to needing low interest rates. We need zero rates and really accommodative monetary policies because if rates went up a lot here, we all know that things would become disastrous very quickly at these debt levels. And yet, if you keep pushing that button and potentially get inflation, like frankly we do today, it becomes a lot harder to maintain that balance and keep rates low and if inflation is rising. So we'll see, I think, how persistent the current inflation is. When we wrote the paper, it was actually sort of pre-pandemic. So these were a lot of things that you know we'd thought about for some time that actually had very little to do with the pandemic. So we'll see how much of this is real supply-side inflation that might go away, or how much we're potentially seeding a more inflationary environment on a multi-year basis, which I think then bring those risks sort of acutely into our near-term screen that we have to be worried ultimately as investors, that this isn't the backdrop that we had over the past 10 years. That backdrop was based on falling inflation, falling interest rates. If we have higher inflation and we're already at really low interest rates, it's going to be a different, potentially more volatile dynamic. And that policy risk is going to be right at the center of the investment risk. Let's expand on that a little more. So again, one of the paper's key takeaways was that prudent long-term investors must take into account various endgame scenarios. What does that exactly mean? Well, it sounds like you're quoting some fancy language there, but I, I'm going to guess- Robin, Robin told me to say, ask that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the essence of it is uh, we came down to two really big picture conclusions because frankly, with a topic this big, it's not as if there was just sort of the silver bullet. It's like, oh, by the way, if you know you're in a highly indebted world, you just do this one thing and everything will completely be fine. We know the reality is much more complex. But, but here's two things that we sort of really learned and it's worth emphasizing. One is we should expect more volatility. And so what, what can you do as an investor in that, especially for volatility that potentially comes from switching policy regimes or you know, worrying if the Fed is going to get too tight and bring the whole financial system down? Like These are really big risks that are hard to intuit. So one is being more nimble, if you can be. Part of that might be that you just need to be ready to rebalance faster if we do get the, the volatility hitting very hard. And we've seen some evidence of this. You know, the last couple corrections that we've had or market downturns, they happen really, really quickly. And then you can snap back. And I'm not saying it's always going to be a quick snap back, but whether it's on the up or the downside, being a little more nimble and realizing that you're going to have to potentially de-risk and re-risk at different times and be faster than you've been in the past. Not so you're day trading it, but just so that you're taking what the market's giving you and taking advantage of some of the volatility. That's kind of a first point. The second one's by far the most important is before you even get to that point, be more diversified. Diversification is obviously bread and butter for long-term long-term portfolio building and everything. But frankly, over the past 10, 15 years, it would have been very easy to learn the opposite. If you had owned sort of a US dominant 60-40 portfolio, that's all you needed. You got above average returns from both the S&P 500 and the ag, and they were perfectly uncorrelated or negatively correlated. 
in a in a higher inflation environment, for example, you don't expect those correlations to stay negative, in which case your whole portfolio is more at risk than it's been before. So the diversification in part is against inflation, but it's actually much broader than that. It's against sort of extreme events, extreme events with policy. That could mean a, a much weaker dollar. It could mean a deflation scare at some point. So thinking about more diversification in both the fixed income side and the equity side, but other alternative assets, real assets, uh, other currencies, and, and just everything else. Because we know if we own the 60-40 now, it could still end up being the dominant paradigm. And large cap U.S. growth stocks could still be the best thing over the next 10, 20, 30 years. But we also know we're heavily exposed to large cap growth and to a lot of duration on both the bond and the stock side in just a generic 60-40 portfolio now. And if you think about other scenarios here being a little bit more inflationary, maybe more nominal growth and some swings back and forth, um, there's a lot of other categories that have been out of favor on a relative basis that could do much better than that typical 60-40 if some of those other scenarios percolate. So outside of debt and inflation, are there other risks that you're watching um, for the global economy? That wasn't enough to worry about. We got to think about some <laughs> no other kidding. things. Yeah, exactly. Let's just keep going. Let's see how far we can go. So I think, you know, when I look at the global economy right now, China's a bit of an outlier. And the reason is it's on a bit of a different trajectory from a business cycle standpoint. So China was the first country to really get COVID, the first one to really lock down hard, and the first one then to come out of it. So they've always been a little bit ahead of the game. But what's happening now in China is also somewhat idiosyncratic to that country in that they're sort of in the opposite position that the U.S. was before the 2008 financial crisis. They've just been through a decade plus of extreme buildup of private sector debt, a lot of it going into property. And they're just trying to digest all of that debt in kind of an over-levered system and tamp down on, in particular, speculation in the property markets. Um, so we've kind of switched places here, frankly, the U.S. and China in, in, in many ways in that respect. And right now, China has slowed dramatically. Um, they have a lot of regulatory and other political risks in the country. They've really under, underperformed. If you look at the Chinese stock market, emerging market stocks done very poorly on a relative basis, especially over the past 6, 12 months. So maybe a lot of that's already priced in. But when I think about the biggest risk to the global economy, it is still the second largest economy in the world. It's hugely important, as we know, for global manufacturing as, as a big source of demand for commodities and many other things. So I do think while it's possible we're sort of bottoming in here and there may be a near-term opportunity for emerging markets to do well, I also think when you ask the question, what's sort of the biggest risk of the global economy is that they don't thread this needle exactly right with their policies, and we see a more extended downturn than perhaps we've seen in the past decade from them. Let's turn to Washington for a minute. There are several uh, really large, um, impactful bills making their way through Congress at the moment. What's Fidelity's take on the impact of that legislation and the, the general political environment on the economy? Well, I'll give you my take. I think uh, I, I, I'd be careful about saying it's, it's Fidelity's take on anything that has to do with politics or what's happening in D.C. But yeah, D.C., I think, has been, from an investment standpoint, a much more interesting place over the last couple of years than it usually is. 
Usually we do not have fast fiscal policy that sends out trillions of dollars and changes the trajectory of an economic outlook overnight. We've had that over the past couple of years with these emergency responses during the pandemic. I think what you're seeing now with these packages, the infrastructure one that just passed, as well as some of the, the social uh, and, and, and green spending that could potentially be part of another legislative package before the end of the year, I think what you're seeing now is something that will be more multi-year and hence not quite as impactful for our near-term outlook. So they're interesting, uh, and we certainly need infrastructure on a long-term basis. So I think some of this is very welcome and can potentially be you know, part of a, a improvement in, in long-term productivity as, as an example with the infrastructure spend. But overall, what we're getting to right now is we're kind of at peak fiscal support for the moment in the near term. When we look out at next year, for example, no matter what happens in DC for the rest of the year, we're going to have a lot less fiscal spending than we've had this year during you know, the unveiling of all the COVID packages. So we're going to move for, from sort of an environment where you're getting $3 trillion of extra deficit financed money that was going to be dispersed over a year or two to you know, maybe a few hundred billion more dollars for next year. But the year over year is still going to be quite a bit smaller. So we're going to have a bit of a fiscal drag, actually, in 2022. We'll plateau from there. And that's when these multi, multi-year packages um, are going to send us in a trajectory where I think fiscal policy in general, over sort of a medium term, and this is probably true no matter which political party ends up being in power, let's say three or four years from now, is kind of in a more accommodative phase where we are doing more. We're still doing a lot of deficit financing that's been hugely bipartisan over the past several years. And we're not really in an environment where we're looking to close the deficit much. And, and fiscal in that environment is probably generally growth supportive over the medium term. So I have a question. So government is becoming a larger part of the global economy. And you just mentioned how policy risk or policy mistakes could be more impactful than ever. The question I have is how should a professional investment manager think about all this in advance? In other words, I've always thought about when it comes to government policy, that it's eventually going to show up in the valuations, the earnings, the momentum, all the kind of classic inputs to making investment decisions. But should I be anticipating more? Should I be more proactive than reactive? What, what can an investor do, given that policy is going to be more important than ever? So I, I think it's another one where it's, it's so prevalent and it's going to be, become such a part of our DNA that it's going to be multifaceted the way we're going to attack it. I think we've largely over the past few decades, you know, no matter when you started your career, been able to kind of ignore politics. I mean, certainly always in emerging markets and whatnot, it mattered, but rarely have we had this kind of politics, you know, at the center and policy kind of at the center, even of a lot of developed countries. So I think whether we like it or not, it's already sort of seeping into our asset allocation, but it can also be, you're going to start thinking about when you do manager selection for instance, you know, so active management just in picking, you know, stocks or bonds is you're going to want managers that actually are thinking about that as part of their process and their overlay too, and have some structure behind them to help decipher that. Because 
some of this can be big picture. Like I just said a minute ago, you know, there's more political risk in China. Okay, fair enough. But now you have to go down and kind of think about, well, is it the equity market or the bond market in China you're worried about? Is it you don't want to invest in China at all? Or in a global portfolio, maybe you just want to make sure you're focusing on more of the industries that will be less touched by the government and will have more private sector potential. But I think you said it right at the beginning there. It's, it's profits that I'm most worried about. When you think about government regulation and you just think about government policy being more involved in general, I'm not worried that the U.S. is going to become a socialist country by any actual term of the meaning. But what I do worry about is when you sort of sum up all the different things that are happening, whether it's you know the Fed getting more involved in the bond market or more regulation of big tech, like all of those things have the potential to seep into reducing corporate profitability, potentially acting you know as a drag on growth, but maybe not, potentially being more inflationary, but maybe not. But at the bottom line, it's hard to see how this is positive for profits because we've been in a very pro-business, laissez-faire regulatory environment for the last 30 years. And anything that sort of puts the government or government policy front and center is going to become, I think, a little more problematic for private sector activity and, and as investors pulling the profits to us, which is kind of the goal of a lot of the investing. Okay. So getting back to inflation, if inflation rates are moving higher and more persistent than expected, what should investors do with their portfolios? What kind of hedges would you recommend? So when we start thinking about this, and been thinking about it for a long time, but you know the the debt discussions we did put our finishing touches on that paper a couple of years ago. There was no inflation priced into any expectations in any asset markets. That's not true today. They have gone up very very quickly, and now you can see you know whether it's in the tips market or the rally we've had in commodities. People are expecting, especially in the short term, a fair amount more inflation. So it's getting harder. And you are going to have to think about you know, what's already priced in versus how much more of an inflation surprise do I expect. But here's, here's what I would sort of say in general. Some of the things like tips on the bond side, shorter duration, or on the stock side, commodities and traditional hedges, as well as some of the things like real assets real estate and gold and, and other types of commodities, those will all still be pretty good inflation hedges. Even if they get expensive, they should still hedge somewhat that surprise of potentially even higher inflation or greater inflation than's already priced in. But you may also want to think about different environments. Low inflation has meant low nominal growth in the US for the past 10 years. We've never really gotten above sort of 4% nominal growth at any point since, since the global financial crisis. So what if it's just that we get 5 or 6% nominal growth and we're not even sure where, whether it's growth or inflation or where that extra you know, couple percent comes from? Well, things like value stocks tend to do better than growth stocks in, in higher nominal growth type of environment. So you could diversify just by taking, making sure your style's a little neutralized. You could also take more advantage of exposures outside the United States or in other currencies and whatnot that aren't tied to US inflation risk. Now, maybe it's a global inflation risk that we have, but still the odds that you could push the dollar weaker, you know, or one thing as a, as a US investor that you want to be wary of. So I think it's, it's sort of a sum of all the different exposures that you can have and going back again to that idea that 
we need to get even more expansive in terms of our definition of diversification if we really want to hedge the potential for different scenarios that might include some more inflation. All right. Here's another question for you. It's a question I get. And in short is with interest rates so low, but with inflation moving higher, why would I even own bonds in a multi-asset portfolio? What would you say to that? Well, the first thing I would say is everything I've said up to this point may or may not be right. And so the other side of this is what if we have a big deflationary scenario where growth is the biggest problem and we're not worried about inflation at all? It's not my base case, but I could actually see in a period of volatility, let's say over the next 10, 15 years, we could have periods of volatility where you go back and forth between deflation scares and inflation scares. You know, if the central banks decide to really crack down on inflation because it gets too high, you know, by raising rates, does that send us into a real growth scare and really crush financial markets? In which case, I probably want to own 30-year treasury bonds in that environment, even though it would seem like there's a lot of downside risk if rates go up. Rates can always go lower. That's one thing we've shown. So part of it is just simple diversification again. And what's dramatically different from two years ago is when you look at sort of market pricing between inflation and deflation, deflation on a relative basis has gotten a lot less expensive as insurance to kind of protect against by buying you know, things like bond duration or in the options market, much less expensive to protect against than actually higher inflation is today. So I, I think the biggest thing I would say is, you know, you still own some, you, you still generate some income from bonds. You may want to think about the fixed income part of your portfolio more creatively, but there aren't that many really significant, easy ways to diversify equity risk, for example, and bonds still hold that in a scenario where we don't get a lot of inflation, interest rates don't go up much or they even go down, that's still a pretty good hedge. I want to go back to, again, the work from the asset allocation research team. Do you, how much do you look into things such as valuations or price momentum in your work? So valuations, we usually consider to be part of our long-term secular work because when you go back and look at, let's say you start a starting point for the S&P 500 where the price earnings ratio is well above historical levels, you would usually expect you will get lower expected returns over a long period of time. But over a short period of time, it, there's a lot of noise in that. In other words, the market's pretty expensive now, but what are the odds the market becomes more expensive next year, over the next year? About 50-50 or you know, who knows. But over the next 10 years, I will think about reducing my return expectation for U.S. stocks because the starting point is high. So valuations, unless they're really, really extreme, in which case we'd probably ring a tactical bell like this is the cheapest or the most expensive that anything's ever gotten, so you should act now and not wait for the 10 years, I usually think of it as long-term. Momentum, we think of as kind of a factor. And we do some analysis on, on factors and, and have uh, different exposures. Some of them are tied somewhat to the business cycle at times. Some of them are more tactical. Uh, momentum, you know, as a long-term strategy, tends to work reasonably well as, as, as part of, you know, a sort of multi-pronged strategy. Um, it has times with the market, especially some, not bad in mid-cycle, but especially in late cycle, when momentum can, can oftentimes be the most important factor. So, Again, we go back to all these things have their place. You just have to think about, is it, is it part of your you know, near-term outlook where you'll get an advantage or is it sort of part of the long-term landscape? 
All right. One asset class we have not talked about yet are digital assets. And advisors are increasingly asking about this. What is your team's perspective on digital assets? So we have a lot of different views about them. I mean, it's certainly been a fascinating place to watch here over the past couple of years in particular. I think what it comes down to, uh, to me, is a lot of digital assets, and you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to generalize, but let's just sort of use, think about Bitcoin as, as you know, our main cryptocurrency right now. You know, there are going to be lots of applications for digital assets in general. Question is, is it a good investment and, and why? And I think it comes down to us as being sort of a, a high volatility digital alternative currency. So think of it as sort of digital gold, but a high vol one. And the reason for that is, you know, things like Bitcoin offer you something that's not tied to the US dollar. It's not tied to any fiat currency. It holds the, the promise that it could be a store of value that's independent of policymakers and independent, again, in, in helping to hedge some of those risks that we've been talking about, about debasing currency and inflation, all that. The issue, though, is I don't think anyone's actually ever going to transact in gold very much, and they're probably not going to do it as a substitute for a real currency with Bitcoin or any of these other things. So I think it'll remain more volatile than gold because it has the potential of being this next new thing, and that's why I think it's done so well over the past year relative to gold. But by the same token, um, it probably has more risk downside risk from gold from a regulatory standpoint, that if the Federal Reserve decides it's going to introduce a digital currency, it's going to be hard to figure out how some of these other cryptocurrencies fit alongside it. So what we think of is in that diversification landscape that I talked about, where you get more and more expansive, this fits into a bucket of sort of alternative currencies. So those alternative currencies could have the Japanese yen and some other fiat currencies in there as diversification, but they could have gold, gold miners and and things like Bitcoin or Ethereum. And that way you're, you're getting a diversification of your, your alternative basket. So we've talked a lot about um, the risks to the economy today and, and the media can focus on those risks quite a lot and really just bad news in general. Sometimes um, they really do highlight that and investors can be sort of bogged down by it. So what are your best tips to keep investors focused on the long term and on plan? Yeah, you know, I think you're right. I think the, the, the hurdle here is always a psychological one because the media tends to report negative news. I mean, that's just the way it is. You know, you usually don't wake up and read, you know, it was sunny yesterday and nobody got murdered. Like those are not like headlines that you ever see. So it can really, I think, you know, cause you if you're if you're trying to be news driven and trying to be like, I'm going to stay on top of things as an investor and I'm going to react to it do know that you've got a very negative skew and there's always positive things in the world that are just un underreported in general. But I think the biggest mistake that people make is extrapolating how important something is for the investment markets relative to how much news coverage it's getting or how much debate or controversy there is around it. Because oftentimes those things are not correlated at all. And I go back to sort of my geopolitics background I spent at least a, a decade at Fidelity after leaving the Foreign Service in finding no real connection between geopolitics and anything that I can think of as, as an investment conclusion. 
And yet you would have picked up the, the paper every single day during that 10-year period, and you would have found something horrible going on in the world. We would have fought wars. We would have you know, all these extreme things happen, terrorist attacks, et cetera. But at the end of the day, it's got to come back and really matter for the economy, for corporate profits, for something that is really going to be sustained and hit at sort of the center of the investment world. And most of what we listen to every day in terms of news is not that relevant. Well, sort of along those lines, do you have any recommendations for what information advisors and investors should be taking in? Books, podcasts, Twitter feeds, anything? So I, I, part of it was a pandemic. Part of it is my um, children got a lot older, but I've had a lot more time to read the last several years, which has been great. I, I love history. I do read some nerdy history, so I'm not going to recommend that. Although I, I, one of the things, so when you think again about the world, the world where and then this unprecedented age and all this, but, but there are always historical parallels that you can find. So trying to go back further and further into history, reading John Maynard Keynes, and you know, he, he was an extremely important figure, World War One, World War II, putting the, you know, the post, post-war era together. To me, that's all fascinating. I, I do have one book that I think is very not nerd. Well, it's a little nerdy, but it's told more like a novel um, called Lords of Finance. Liaquat Hamid wrote it. And it was basically about uh, central bankers during sort of World War I and World War II, kind of in the 1920s when things were very tumultuous, but they were sort of on top of the game and Wall Street was booming and everything else. And, and try to kind of see the limitations of history and think about different politics and, and economics throughout that background. I think I was given that book during a white elephant exchange one time, or I ended up with it. And the book is, I didn't read it. It's so big, man. It scares me. <laughs> All right. So I'll give you another one. I, uh, pod, <laughs> podcasts, uh, Mike Duncan, and, and this is, it's, it's a lot, but he, he does uh, historical podcasts, everything from history of Rome to revolutions like the American Revolution. So some of this is not all, certainly not applicable to financial markets every single day. But what I found in reading books is I, I get plenty of news and I get plenty of stuff of what's going on every day. What it's easy to lose track of is perspective and think that like day to day things are changing so dramatically or day to day things are happening that have never happened before and how could you possibly figure it out? And then you go back and read or listen to history and you kind of hear echoes of today. And I think when you do that, the more you sort of ingrain it into yourself that there's always something that you can you can learn from the past that will probably help you in today. If nothing else, it gives you a little more confidence in periods of volatility or at other times to not worry about what you don't know and just sort of accept that there's a lot of things that potentially have a wider range of possibilities that you've thought of before. So it's a pretty good risk management tool as well. Totally makes sense. Next question. So in our profession, we all have the obligation to perform at a high level. What do you do, either physical or mental, to ensure that you're performing at a high level? You know, one of the nice things about the, the pandemic and being home more and maybe, you know, in this world where we're going to end up being more, more virtual or semi-virtual is um, the ability to get outside more. Uh, so I, I love jumping on the bike when it's nice, going for a walk. I bought a paddleboard and a, and a kayak during the pandemic, so I've been getting on local rivers or, or lakes and, and doing that. So I actually, yeah, I think the physical 
part to me is actually huge for the mental side of things and, and getting those breaks and getting outside fresh air is a big part of sort of keep keeping myself uh, as alert as possible. That is big. Absolutely. Well, Derek, it's been great having you on the show today. How can listeners learn more about Fidelity, what the firm is thinking and more about you? Thank you for asking. I actually asked our, our marketing folks before this so that I would know I send you the right place. Uh, <laughs> we, we have a, uh, I'll just give you the uh, the Vanny URL uh, where you can find our team's work. It's it's i.fidelity.com slash A-A-R-T. It's our name, the asset allocation research team. And, and we put out, you know, some regular pieces. Uh, you can find some of the white papers we discussed. I actually do a podcast uh, once a month. It's nowhere near as ambitious as this one. So I, I will not be stealing uh, any any viewership from you, but uh, you know, six six or eight minutes, maybe once a month, do do a quick podcast. But you'll find you'll find all of that on the uh, at that URL. Again, thank you as well. But I do have one more really important question. So, Robin and I, of course, are based in Omaha, and you are an Omaha native. True, but you are a Georgetown grad. So, who do you root for when Georgetown plays Creighton, and who do you think is more likely to win the Big East in basketball this year? Wow. Uh, well. I actually haven't followed the off season at all, so I'm not sure. So I'm going to go with Creighton because Georgetown's been so bad over the past, frankly, 10 or 15 years. I do, frankly, I hate to say it, I grew up going to, to Creighton basketball games, so I still love the Blue Jays, but Hoyas were my only basketball, you know, the only sports team we had, so I'm, I'm pretty diehard. I kind of root for the Hoyas in the <laughs> basketball games. But I root for Nebraska football and anything else, Nebraska and any other sport. Cool. Uh, I can take that. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Stay balanced and stay the course. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.